0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. On this frigid January day here in the nation's capital, our first episode of the new decade. This week, we're going to debate whether Joe Biden has solidified his status as the race's clear frontrunner. How the conflict with Iran will influence the Democratic primary, and why nobody in Congress is endorsing in this Democratic primary. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I am Alex Horty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. Today I am joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent. Emily, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And to my left, I am flanked by Dave Katneys, another national political correspondent for McClatchy. Dave, welcome back. Happy New Year. Okay, so let's let's get right into it. We are in the home stretch of the Democratic primary. The Iowa caucuses are less than a month away. And it seems clear that as we head down this home stretch, that perhaps in an unexpected development, Joe Biden seems like he is a clear front runner in this race. Polls show that if he's not leading in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's at least near the top or within even the margin of error. And of course, nationally, his support has held steady. He still has the most support of any candidate in the race. So, Dave, let me turn the, the question to you. Make the case- for me here. Why is Joe Biden a clear-cut frontrunner in this race as, as we hit the home stretch here?
2: I think the main top line that answer would be because he's been the only candidate to show sustained support with people of color, which we know begin to dominate the primary process after we get out of the first two states. And Look, we spend an incredible amount of time focusing on Iowa and New Hampshire. So do the candidates. That's where their schedules are going to be packed for the next 25 to 30 days. But after that, you know, you get more Hispanics voting. You get more African-Americans voting. In certain states, you get more Asian-Americans voting. And in poll after poll... Joe Biden has been the only one to show that he can gain that support and gain it in a demonstrable fashion. Now, the the X factor is, do African-Americans and Hispanics look at the results out of Iowa, and New Hampshire, and if they're muddled or if there is a Pete Buttigieg victory or a Bernie Sanders victory or Elizabeth Warren victory— Do they stay with Biden throughout losses? We've addressed this in a a story that we wrote. Or do they move? Are they loyal to the former vice president, no matter what he undergoes in those first two states? Or do they start to look at other options if another candidate looks viable? That's the question that we won't know until about 25 to 30 days from now. But I think the most recent polling that we've seen, it looks good for Biden that the first two states... Are a muddle, and then that—that that feels like that's what the big change is from even a couple of months ago.
0: And I think we even discussed it on the show. There seemed like if you were talking about in in. October or November, a real possibility that the vice president could come in fourth in Iowa and maybe even a a distant fourth or a relatively distant fourth. And it feels like since that moment, since he held a bus tour in Iowa, since he had a strong debate performance in December, that he's had what one Iowa Democrat yesterday described to me as a mini surge in the state. Mm -hmm. And now it's it it feels less of a question, Emily, of whether or not he's going to finish fourth or really fall off in this race or whether he can actually win, not just Iowa but New Hampshire, and that's that's a a pretty dramatic turnaround for him. Um, wh- why do you think he's been been able to do it?
1: You know, I think the the steadiness of Biden, maybe not his performance day to day, but just in terms of his overall presence on the national political scene for so long, has reassured people. Despite maybe some of the gaffes, that he just he simply has the seasoning and the experience. He certainly has the name ID. And, you know, the electability argument, which I agree is somewhat, you know, in and of itself like an amorphous concept. People mm-hmm. have different ideas of what electability We've means. We've got a lot of content out of that on, yeah. on
0: this show and in our stories <laughs> yeah. for sure.
1: But I do think that Biden still leads in that regard and people are really being strategic in this election. They're looking at the polls. They're seeing how he fares matched up against Donald Trump, and they still continue to see him performing well in these state-by-state general election matchups, and I think that's influencing people. Um, I also think while foreign policy is not going to determine this primary race, certainly the fact that Iran has dominated the headlines recently, um, you know, just makes people a little more uneasy, and I think it makes that drives them to more of a safe. The safe pick. And Biden, while you can dispute his foreign policy decisions over the course of his career, he certainly has the foreign policy experience. He knows foreign leaders. He's been on the on the international stage. Um, and I think that's probably also reassuring to people.
0: You know, and, and we want to talk a little bit more about how the conflict with Iran is, is influencing the Democratic primary. I will I will say, uh, and I'm going to read a quote uh, from Sean McElwey, who spoke to MSNBC's Alex Seitzwald, really, I think kind of pinpointing the frustration that a lot of progressives are starting to feel as they, they too recognize that Joe Biden is once again a, a firm frontrunner. In this race, He's, quote progressives shot all their shots right at the beginning, and then we're like, I guess that didn't work. We'll just fight each other and then deal with him later. And, you know what Sean is talking about. The vice president got so much flack when he entered this race that people were so carefully scrutinizing his his record going back decades in the Senate. Of course, you know the most high profile incident of that, Kamala Harris, on the first mm-hmm. debate, questioning his record on on busing. And you know I think people expected the bottom to drop out. It didn't, and it's one of the things that. Thing has really stuck with me about his his race is, you know, even as the narrative has turned against him, and even as people are being more critical, his support slackened a little bit, but he by and large held on to his supporters. And you contrast that with someone like Elizabeth Warren, who when when things were good, she was building support and really seemed like she might even emerge as a front runner in this race. And instead, you know, the narrative turns, and it seems like her, her support is just a little bit more fragile than the former vice president's. And that's where it's really catapulted Joe Biden in this thing. Now, look, I don't want to declare Joe Biden the winner by any stretch. You know, This race, just like any presidential primary, had a lot of twists and turns. Dave, is there anything that you see as, as a potential trouble point for him? Are there any pitfalls, do you think, or
2: any challenges he still has to overcome? I mean, look, he could still theoretically fall into fourth place in both Mm -hmm. of these first two states. I mean, Mm. these polls are muddled. It's 21, 20, 19, 15. And we've got three, four weeks and a lot can go on. And I just feel like it's very volatile between those top four. If he's fourth place in Iowa, fourth place in New Hampshire, people are hitting panic buttons. They're asking about his viability. There's going to be questions about is he really the most electable candidate? Maybe his numbers against Trump, vis-a-vis Trump in general elections fall. So look, I, I think he's a weak frontrunner. I think mm-hmm. he's the frontrunner, but I, I think he's a weak frontrunner. He's mm-hmm. not a Hillary Clinton frontrunner um, mm-hmm. compared to 2016. But I also just want to make a quick point about you're, you're talking about progressives going after Biden. Remember where we were about a month ago? They were focusing all their fire on Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. So Biden had this period, I think, between the end of November through December where he was almost going untouched in these debates where you had Warren and Buttigieg in this fight. You had Klobuchar entering a fight with Buttigieg. You know, Bernie was trying to take some shots at Biden, but that, that really p- pushed through uh, over the other noise that was really dominant in the media sphere. So I think we can't underestimate that Buttigieg Warren fight, which was a couple weeks in the making, that I think has allowed Biden to rise a bit. I was talking with someone from Iowa yesterday, a Elizabeth Warren supporter who is canvassing for her, and he told me that he still goes to the doors and hears people saying, I think I have to vote for Biden, even though he's my fourth choice. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't know what I can say to these people. He was a little bit exasperated in explaining this. And again, he's an Elizabeth Warren supporter. So there, there's, there's definitely the perception out there that, look, this looks like a muddle, maybe we have to go with the, with the safest bet, and that safest bet appears to be Joe Biden.
0: It, it's not hard to even envision a scenario, Emily, where, let's say it was Warren or Buttigieg, in a, in a parallel universe here, where they had suddenly surged, and mm-hmm. surged well beyond where they are now, not into the teens or even 20% support, but the 30 40% where I think that would have been really tough for the vice president for, for obvious reasons, but if there was just a clear alternative, someone who looked like the future, he looked like the past. But at, to Dave's point, in a muddled field where no one is really sure who the front runner is, you know that people are now starting to think, well, I guess it's going to be Biden. I had someone, an Iowa Democrat, yesterday tell me the same thing that at the end of this process, despite all the criticism, no one has really changed their mind about who Joe Biden fundamentally is right. in this race, and that it, with the the absence of a clear alternative. People are grudgingly or, or just accepting that, OK, he is going to be the guy. And that seems to be that that sort of that gravitational pull seems to be helping him at the moment.
1: I do think that there could be a scenario where, as you said, you could have different winners of Iowa, New Hampshire, Biden takes South Carolina and, and Nevada. But then you go into March and, you know, if the race thins a little bit, if you have like a Biden versus Bernie or a Biden versus versus Warren kind of matchup. Suddenly, Mike Bloomberg's in the picture because he's been spending a gazillion dollars and has hundreds of staffers on the ground in places like Michigan and California and Ohio, North Carolina. I do think the race becomes different. And I'm not sure that Biden emerges from a two-man or a three-man race in the same shape as he looks to be benefiting from the fragmented nature of the race overall. So While I do think the fact that he has such strong support in places like South Carolina are really significant, I think March could be interesting and probably determinative, and I'm not entirely confident Biden would be the one to emerge from March, with all of the delegates, but it's just another X factor. That's why I think, as Dave said, he's a weak front runner. There's sure. there's a lot of things that can still play out in the next couple months.
0: Well, there is there is something that, to to note about March. What does Mike Bloomberg do? And I think that's going to yeah. quickly become, particularly if Biden does perform well in Iowa, performs well in New Hampshire, wins Nevada, wins. A, is Bloomberg sticking this race? Because if he does, he figures to pull support away from Biden more than any other candidate, mm-hmm. and in particular Bernie. And then it becomes a little bit of a almost a math problem for Joe Biden if he's not getting the numbers he needs. And meanwhile, Bernie Sanders is racking up delegates. It's just something to think about after we get past these initial contests. We're going to quickly, I think, change from a narrative race to a delegate race awfully fast. And that is a place where Bernie Sanders could potentially thrive. All right. There was obviously a huge development since our last podcast here, the conflict with Iran. And, you know, this is a politics show and we're going to focus on the political fallout of this. And it was really, to me, felt like the first moment where foreign policy, at least temporarily, really seemed to to be the main topic of discussion in the presidential primary. And, and we should say it's not as if there was any hesitancy from Democratic presidential candidates to comment mm-hmm. uh, on anything. And so, Emily, I, w- I want to ask you, what do you think, is there going to be a lingering effect as you know, things stand here January 9th on Thursday, it seems as if things are de-escalating between the United States and Iran. But do you think that there is a lingering effect of this primary? Is there something that voters saw when they looked at candidates, thinking of them as commander-in-chief, that will carry to Iowa, New Hampshire, and through the Democratic primary?
1: I think it probably does. I mean, the conventional wisdom is That this helps Biden. And I think that's probably true. I, I don't know how much, you know, obviously the news cycle these days is so fast. I mean, 24 hours from now, we could be talking about something completely different, maybe impeachment, maybe the Senate trial starts, and that kind of washes all of this away. I mean, Iran is not done, I think, in terms of retaliating. And so if they continue to do things, you know, maybe more kind of clandestine where they're they're launching cyber attacks or doing other sorts of things in the Middle East that create problems. I think that's an ongoing storyline, but I think that's more likely to be a factor in the general election when you have one Democrat facing off against Trump, questioning his judgment, questioning what he's done to America's standing in the world. I think those are questions that are more likely to have an impact there. I mean, there are some differences, obviously, between the Democrats and sort of how they are... Um, characterizing their policies and and Bernie and Biden have actually been kind of snipping at each other about who's more qualified or who has better judgment but I don't see this having a long-term of impact on how voters in Iowa or New Hampshire decide to vote in February.
0: I mean that was the main political takeaway for me Dave was the the sort of argument and maybe it was even one-sided where Bernie Sanders really seized this moment and and used it to as you pointed out earlier Joe Biden had By and large, escaped a lot of criticism for November and December. Will Bernie Sanders use this moment to to go after the former vice president, go after his record in Iraq, supporting uh, the war in Iraq. Do you think that he can continue to make hay out of that? Do you think that that was a good moment in this campaign for him?
2: I think it's very hard. I think foreign policy, I think I agree with Emily. I think it's more of a general election issue. Barring another attack on Americans or a direct conflict with Iran— It's hard for me to sit here and think that 25 days before the caucus, this is going to change the trajectory of this race. Even listening to Joe Biden's comments last night about Iran and President Trump, he was at a fundraiser, I believe, in Washington, D.C., and the pool report came out. And it was described he had measured comments. He didn't directly criticize the president's decision. He made uh, more general comments about his leadership and how he doesn't listen to his national security advisors. But he did not critique the move because I think 24 to 48 hours ago, this looked like a more perilous decision than it did now. Now you come out of this and it looks like, did Trump get the better of this? Did we assassinate a terrorist leader and get away with it without major consequences. No casualties to Americans. I mean, again, we'll see what happens. This, the, the, those comments can be null and void 12 hours for now if there's another Iranian attack. But it looks like Democrats want to let this lie for now. I just haven't seen the rhetoric. And you initially had vague critiques from the Democratic presidential field, now I think they've subsided. And I'm looking at Biden, given that he's the most experienced in foreign policy. He's been through this dozens of times before, these scenarios. And he's not hammering Trump over the head with this. Now, does Bernie Sanders want this debate? Yes, because he's looking for a conflict with Biden at any chance. He knows he that's his competition for the nomination. He believes the Iraq war is a great point of contrast. It's hard for me to believe that voters are going to be litigating the, the Iraq war. And, and Biden's Iraq war vote as a top issue for them going into the polls. but Although I could see Donald Trump making that an issue. Donald Joe Trump, Biden. yeah, for in, sure. In and the general election, election, I think, mm-hmm. is a little bit different, mm-hmm. as Emily as Emily pointed out, than, than a primary. But are primary voters going to turn on Joe Biden because of his Iraq war vote how many years ago?
1: They probably uh, weren't going to support him to begin yeah, with. Yeah, I
2: think you're already in that Bernie camp if you're an yeah. anti-war, anti-interventionist. You're probably firmly in the Bernie camp. Are you, are you going to d- switch your mind, be like, like, well, he voted for the war, and that that was a bad war. Now I'm with Bernie. And frankly, I don't think Bernie has a, uh, has a fully formed foreign policy position, I mean, other than being against what Joe Biden was for and against intervention. But I think some of these Democratic candidates even struggled with, would they have taken out this Iranian general? Warren said she would not have. I think foreign policy is tough terrain for, for most of these candidates because you usually don't deal with it unless you have been president or have been steeped in foreign affairs in the, in the Senate for a long time. And that's that's an advantage. Well, it's certainly not has. something that's come up a lot on
0: the campaign trail, as, right. we, as we mentioned on the Voters episode, aren't asking about I think it. this is probably the first time we've talked about foreign policy on this show in regards to the Democratic primary. One thing that does strike me, because you did have a, kind of uniformly critical. I mean, there were different, certainly varying degrees between someone like Bernie Sanders and and joe biden how critical they were of the president but it did strike me that the, the responses were shadowed by the iraq war for sure and the mm-hmm. and the feeling among a lot of democratic voters that the the disappointment or i should say like the visceral anger that a lo, lot of liberal voters still feel for a party that did support that in, in yeah. many uh-huh. cases supported like joe biden supported the war at least at first and i think you saw that in the responses you know you could just see it play out on twitter among a lot of a more progressive activist who just wanted a flat statement of we are not going to war with Iran, that this is a bad idea, and that they really weren't willing to tolerate any any sort of middle ground in that. And it was just interesting if you're talking about the sort of broader anti-war politics and how it's changed since uh, the the Iraq war, certainly something to, to keep in mind as, as we go forward here.
1: McClatchy's Washington, D.C. Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com briefing.
0: All right, before we leave, Dave, I wanted to talk to you about a story that you published this week. One that I thought kind of told a a larger story about the, the Democratic primary. uh, and really, the Democratic primary in 2019. I'll set it up for you here. Basically, and in, in short, a lot of the congressmen have been pretty hesitant to endorse in this presidential race. Why don't why don't you tell the listeners more about that?
2: Right. It was just striking to me. I was looking back at the you know the 2016 race at the first week of January. Basically, at this point, Hillary Clinton had 181 congressional endorsements. Now, obviously, she was an overwhelming front runner. So, obviously, a different circumstance than this race, but still. If you look at where we are now, Joe Biden just has 31 during the first week, and and he's a a weaker frontrunner, but a frontrunner, and he has relationships with most people in in Congress and the Senate, but in talking to a bunch of members, House and Senate members on Capitol Hill— they basically said, we want to stay out of it. And there were multiple reasons for this. I feel like there is, you know, buyer's remorse from last time. They got in early for Hillary. The rise of Bernie Sanders was not forecast. Then Hillary loses the general election. Did they pick the wrong horse? They have all got constituencies at home, too, that they have to answer to. So if they if they support, you know, one or the other candidate, there's there could be political fallout in their own district. You know, I also feel like they're looking at this almost like pundits like we are, right? The muddled primary. They don't want to, They don't want to pick a loser. And they're looking at this race, <laughs> and they're going, well, maybe Biden is the one, and I like Joe. But, man, you know, his numbers don't look that great. They don't look that strong. They don't look Hillary strong. So th- they're staying out of it. The stat was Biden has about a fifth of the endorsements that Hillary Clinton had at this point. Uh, And it goes down from there. Uh, You know, Warren and Booker, they're tied for second after Biden. But top line is most of these members are... Are staying out of the race, and I don't think you'll see them move until you see the race move, until you see someone start winning, and then you'll see them get on the bandwagon. They will follow public opinion. Well,
0: that, that's why, I mean, one of the reasons I, I thought the story was so good is that, again, it, it kind of told the story of the Democratic primary in 2019. You had a very muddled race. No one was sure that Joe Biden was even a real front runner in the race, no one was sure he was going to emerge. And so you saw that manifests itself in the lack of congressional endorsements because everyone is so cautious. Now, Emily, I feel like every time we have an endorsement story, we, we ask this question, does it matter? I mean, I understand that it tells a story about the Democratic primary, but do the lack of congressional endorsements, has that really hurt Joe Biden in any sort of way? How much do endorsements really matter in this race?
1: Well, I think we talked about it last week or this week about how Cory Booker has a, a large number of endorsements in Iowa and New Hampshire and certainly from, from fellow members of Congress. And it really hasn't helped him. I think it's definitely not bad to have you know elected officials behind your campaign, but- for example, Kamala Harris, all of the California leaders, elected officials at the state level were behind her campaign, and it didn't really do much for her in early California polls. You know, Ultimately, she, she ended her presidential campaign. I, I do think especially um, sort of these elected official political types, the, those endorsements are mattering less and less these days, Bernie Sanders doesn't get that kind of support from the establishment. And that probably helps him and his brand is anti-establishment. So, you know, an endorsement here or there can make a big difference if it's if it makes a splash in the headlines, but kind of rolling out these kind of endorsements every week, they've become so routine. And there's so many candidates in the field, as we've talked about, it's, it's sort of hard to think that, you know, a state legislature or, or uh, even a member of Congress is really going to have that much of an impact.
0: I mean, we can all agree that there was one endorsement that did seem to matter. It was Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement yeah, um, of, of Bernie Sanders. And that was as much about the timing in the, at, in the immediate aftermath of his heart attack. It really seemed to reinvigorate the the campaign or help reinvigorate it. Just recently, we had What I think people would argue as potentially a major endorsement, Julian Castro, who of course left the presidential race, Mm -hmm. then again immediately endorsed Elizabeth Warren. The two held a rally together. Now it seems like he is. You know, I heard you. I saw you mention on Twitter. You know, there's a little. There are little shades of Cruz Fiorina uh, (laughs) (laughs) at the the end of the 2016 GOP primary. Now, you know, in someone else, I saw. You know, it it was. Is he already her running mate? No, I don't think we're we're there yet. We're, 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 the, getting the, close we're, we're getting close. like she well, wants. This, okay, that. I
2: mean, her, his names are on the signs now. Right, so He's campaigning like, for
1: her in Nevada this yeah, weekend. Yeah, it's definitely so. a
2: play for for people of color, mm-hmm. and you know, it, she needed a new moment of excitement. Sure, uh, and and she got some energy and, and and media out of that. I think it's a good picture for the Democratic Party, but I also think it got overwhelmed by Iran in, in a, for, for a bit of it.
0: So. Right. Well, I mean, and, that, and that's the question. I mean, do we think that this is the the going to be the equivalent for her, or is her campaign just to have too many challenges at this point for Julian Castro to really, in the same way that Ocasio-Cortez seemed to inject new life, do we see that happening with Castro right now, or... To I
1: don't think that Castro has the same cachet as Ocasio-Cortez. She is right. sort of a – like AOC is just – it's a one-name kind of phenom, particularly She's on social media. Yeah. And – you know, I think that her power and reach is what draws a lot of headlines. I know when I have headlines with the squad in them even that those draw a lot of clicks because All they right. are so polarizing. Castro is not that kind of personality. Like I said, he's going to be in Nevada this weekend campaigning for, for Warren. That probably helps her there. He was spending a lot of time in Nevada and had a constituency there. So it, it's not going to hurt her, but I don't think it helps her the same way that AOC's endorsement helped Bernie.
0: All right, let us move on to my favorite segment every week. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something out of your notebook, something you've reported, something you saw from an, a,
2: another reporter that our listeners
0: should know. Dave, you're up first.
2: So this actually comes out of the congressional endorsement story that I reported on this week. Talk to talked to congressional members out of Michigan, out of Wisconsin, some very progressive members, and they're repeatedly complaining to me about how they didn't feel like any of the candidates were focusing on issues of importance to them, whether it be education in urban areas, whether it be the rural economy for, for some members. And when I would prod them about why weren't they endorsing, they kept coming back to issues. And I went through the list of candidates and, you know, we've had how many candidates in this field talking with how many plans and you've got members of, of Congress saying they aren't happy with the issues. And the most Striking thing to me, which you guys will get a chuckle out of, I think, is almost to a T, every one of them said, this primary has been too focused on health care. <laughs> we'll uh, get it, a chuckle right? out of it. Yeah. I mean, like the Medicare for all debate versus opting in. And even Jeff Merkley, I, I was sitting in his Senate office and he said, if, if the next moderator starts the debate with that question, he would say, we got other damn issues to talk about. He wants the candidates to push back. And this is a progressive member. Remember, healthcare is the number one issue for Democrats. Like, in poll after poll, that's what it shows. That's what they care about. But yeah, Democratic elected officials, Dan Kildee told me, he's like, it's been too much on this Medicare fall, and the nuances of this. We're all for the same goal. Why are we getting in the weeds on this? I think that reflects some nervousness and anxiety about this being a whipping boy for Donald Trump in a general election, no matter who the nominee is. And, you know, from progressive to even more moderate members, they want the debate moved off of health care. I don't. We'll see if that happens in the last three or four weeks, this campaign before people start voting. But that was striking to me. Members saying that repeatedly over and over. No more health care.
0: Get the sense, they don't really like the politics of that. Yeah. that too as yeah. as much as the, the policy. Emily, what do you got?
1: So I wrote a story this week about the campaign's use of text messaging, and I, I was interested in, because I get texts from Bernie Sanders all the time, how widespread this has now become, and I thought it was pretty striking some of the statistics just in terms of Sanders' campaign in 2016 was sort of at the forefront of using this new technology, this software, to enable basically their own volunteers and supporters to text people at a kind of a mass mass reach and and very micro-targeted sort of demographically. They have sent 88 million texts so far in this election cycle compared to roughly 10 million texts they sent in all of their 2016 primary campaign. And it just shows you it's pretty cost effective. You're using volunteers. It doesn't cost the same that TV ads. It's just a way they think they can reach people where they're actually going to cut through, um, which is hard to do sometimes with TV or digital or even emails. So- I think it's something to watch. I learned that you know your cell phone number, if it's your primary number, like it is for me, can end up in your voter files, so they can access those whether you want them to or not. And um, so I think that's going to continue to be a, a key tool for for the campaigns going forward. And
0: and you know you and I have talked. I mean, as campaigns are just kind of desperate to find any way to reach out yeah. to to voters, whether that's knocking on doors or you know, obviously TV ads, but the traditional methods um, seem to work less and less with each cycle. And so that's how you see something like 90 million text messages yeah. <laughs> sent, it's sent to, uh, to voters. Uh, mine, uh, and I will be quick. Just a story that caught my eye this morning out of Politico Bill Scherer, a very smart political reporter out of that shop, noting how little campaigning there has been in Iowa relative to past Democratic campaigns. You had someone like in 2004. 2004 race. Howard Dean visited the state over 100 times. Well, at this point, of the, the front runners, Amy Klobuchar is closest to that, and she might hit 80 visits in the state. But if you look at all of the other front runners, whether that's Buttigieg, Biden, or Warren, they've spent less than 50 days in the state in 2019. And really, to hit the point that he made in the story, just evidence of a primary that is becoming more and more nationalized. And I think we really saw that take off this year for a number of reasons. We've talked about on this show how Iowa seems to be a real focus for people, and I think it has, to the degree that I I just feel like New Hampshire has almost been an afterthought. And in this case, let's pour one out for the granite steak. (laughs) Okay, well that's our show this week. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and I want to thank our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And of course, thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.